welcome to another episode of Fintech Insider by 11FS, where I laid some work on blockchain. For those of you who know me, I'm an unrepentant blockchain geek, so this week's really special for me. Uh, today we bring you interviews with Adam Ludwin, the co-founder and CEO at Chain, and Trent McConaughey, the founder and CTO of BigchainDB. Because later this week, we've got a fantastic blockchain episode with R3's Richard Brown and other great guests. But first, I'll hand over to Chris, who interviewed Adam. At Money 2020, there's a big exhibit hall. There's lots of discussions around mobile payments and peer-to-peer payments and contactless payments. And you've got all the guys here, the usual suspects like Ingenico and Visa MasterCard, obviously. But one of the announcements that really caught my eye was the Visa B2B Connect announcement with Chain. Um, And basically, it's a system that Visa is launching uh, next year for any business to be able to make payments to any other business across borders via blockchain infrastructure developed by Chain Technologies. So in light of that discussion, I'm delighted to introduce Adam, who's the CEO and co-founder of Chain, to talk us through more of what's going on. So Chain is a blockchain technology platform. We partner with organizations like Visa, NASDAQ, Citigroup, uh, and many, many others to deploy what we call a blockchain network. And the essence of a blockchain network is a shared ledger that uh, allows organizations to move assets uh, peer-to-peer more efficiently, more securely than they could with traditional databases uh, or traditional payment networks. So almost everything that we are launching with our partners is a really a new financial network for um, moving assets. So for example, with Visa, we announced uh, this week that we're building a international uh, business-to-business payment network. So a business can pay another business anywhere in the world in any currency, and uh, instead of the current correspondent banking model that's required to do that uh, between a blockchain and Visa's infrastructure, we can create a much more efficient peer-to-peer movement of those funds. So the essence of this is, uh, in terms of how it works, is we're applying cryptography to financial services. And we're doing that because uh, it allows for entities, whether they be banks or individuals or businesses, to have direct control over their assets on a network so that when they want to move them, they can authorize that with their cryptographic key. And this is why sometimes we'll say that, um, what is a blockchain? At essence, it's it's enabling a new medium for assets. Um, and that's the, that's the kind of heart of it. Underlying what you're doing, are you using Ethereum or Ripple or what's, what's the currency? So Chain has built a protocol from the ground up And in fact, there is no single cryptocurrency on a chain network. Instead, all of the assets on a a chain blockchain, and there are many chain blockchains, that's another important thing to realize. Visa's network is not necessarily connected to NASDAQ. They could be, but by default, there are many networks. And what I was saying is that there is no single currency on these networks. All the assets are issued by the participants of that network. So this gets back to you know, if you look at NASDAQ, we're moving securities between 
broker-dealers. If you look at Visa, we're moving currencies between banks. Just p picking on the Nasdaq story for a second, that was a big announcement last year. Um, and that was with the Link Private Equities Exchange. How's that been going in terms of, that's obviously now had a year out there in the wild operating, so yes. what's happened with it? Uh, I think what's, what's really exciting is it has inspired and is actually was the first time I think capital markets and, and marketplace operators realized this isn't vaporware. We can, in fact, deploy these networks. We can, in fact, move securities peer-to-peer -peer without necessarily thinking about traditional uh, clearing and settlement infrastructure and depository infrastructure. So that one project has now spawned several within NASDAQ and more importantly, NASDAQ is a seller of marketplace technology all around the world. Their clients now are saying, we've seen what you've done in the private markets, what can we do uh, in our market? Uh, so it's been a real success for, for them and for us and for the industry, I think, in, in paving the way. And with Visa, uh, we're now applying, you know, I think, again, another marquee name and a marquee opportunity that's going to solve real problems for payments uh, constituents uh, in a way that, again, shows this is not just conceptual anymore. It's coming to market and it's going to start impacting people and businesses in a very real way over the next year. And what kind of intrigues me is you've got digital assets doing its thing, you've got R3 doing its thing, you've got Ripple doing its thing, you've got Ethereum in the backbone of a lot of these things, and yet you seem to have, as you say, a couple of marquee names, NASDAQ Visa, on board with Chain. And what's the reason why they came to you? I mean, why not use something else? You know, I think it was the investment in the relationships with those companies and the fact that we built our blockchain technology in partnership with, you know, a half dozen financial institutions and firms. We didn't show up and say, this is the right answer and try to shove it down their throats. We said, what problems are you trying to solve? And we made a, a, a conscious effort to iterate with them and understand their markets and their problems and design an architecture from the ground up to suit their needs. Most blockchain pilots are today running a modified project that was never designed for that use case, right? So Bitcoin or Ethereum or even in certain cases Ripple, if you look at the original design intent, it is largely about introducing a new cryptocurrency that you would use in place of an, an asset or a currency like a dollar or, or a security. Our motivation is different. Our motivation is not to get to digital money by saying we need a new asset, but to digitize existing currencies with new infrastructure, to change the medium of those currencies. Because, you know, on the one hand, if you look at the cryptocurrency market, there's probably 12 or $13 billion in total market capitalization of those currencies today. In contrast, there are 100 trillion in financial instruments flowing through the economy, and they're, they're flowing through the economy on largely archaic and antiquated systems that have really not fundamentally changed or been reimagined for the modern era, right? The era of digital commerce and global markets. So different design goals. And so I think what Visa and NASDAQ and Citi and our other partners have appreciated about what we've done is we've said we want to really learn and be building this on a, in a way that's fit for purpose uh, and so that's I think what what we've done right uh, and then lastly I think a lot of there's been a lot of um, individuals and, and companies that have recognized the potential of, of blockchain 
actually building a blockchain platform is a massive software undertaking. Uh, it, is, it is a much bigger effort than maybe a traditional uh, software project or, or traditional financial engineering. So we've made investments, I think, that distinguish us from our peer set in building an engineering team and culture that can actually deliver on a complex new idea, a cryptographic distributed database. So it's, 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 it's what we're, I think, most proud of is our team and, and the investments we've made in actually building real technology. So I've talked to a few of your team over the last year, and what intrigues me is that um, you seem to come across as guys who really understand how, you know, coding and the underlying bits and bytes of the technology rather than just people who talk about it. Yes, but at the same time, for us to be successful, just innovating is not sufficient. We have to commercialize that innovation. What is entrepreneurship if it is not the commercialization you know, of innovation? So I think that's where um, our partnership model is so key, that to bring this to market, we have to be able to understand you know, the problems that a, a Visa or a NASDAQ or, or, or banks are facing. And we have to be smart on those topics as much as we're smart on the cryptography. So blockchain, like so many emerging areas of tech, is an interdisciplinary field. If you cannot appreciate how financial services work today and where they could go, and you can't appreciate the business models and you can't appreciate all of that and do that in concert with figuring out what the technology is and how the networks can work, then you'll fail. You'll fail either on the dimension of not commercializing it or you'll fail on the dimension of not being able to build it. So as we've constructed our team, we've wanted to be both commercially oriented and technically uh, superb at every step, which meant that when we were five people, we could cover all those bases. But now that we're you know, almost 30, we're doing the same coverage, just with much more depth and much more pace. I think that's, that's been, to the extent we've gotten something right, that's what we've gotten right so far. And there's one big factor in there, which I'm intrigued about how you overcame it, and that um, you know, working with Visa, you're talking about um, millions of transactions a day. And everyone said, that blockchains don't scale right now to that level of mission critical throughput, but you're obviously delivering something that's supporting that capability. So, right. so how do you do that? That's just a great example of our approach, which is we realized early on that we were going to have to have market scale that no blockchain had ever had as a uh, requirement. We also realized, by the way, we would have to have certain privacy features that will give comfort to financial institutions who are sharing infrastructure that they can do that in a way that doesn't leak data or, or, or confidential information. We realized also that they weren't going to be comfortable with a cryptocurrency as a settlement token, but would rather they wanted issued assets. So scalability is a good example of that. And again, it comes back to the engineering effort, which is once you understand what you're trying to build, uh, that's half the battle. And then really what we've been doing for the last two years is keeping our heads down and making that possible. The scalability itself is solved through a novel consensus model that introduces something called federated consensus where we designate in advance a set of entities which will sign off on new batches of transactions, what are called blocks. And we elect that set in advance and one of those entities proposes a block and the others co-sign it. The difference 
between that and say Bitcoin is Bitcoin does a random election every 10 minutes of who's going to create the block. And we want that in Bitcoin because we don't want to have designated entities running a network. We want it to be completely uh, open and random and the people running the Bitcoin network might be different in two years than they were today. In contrast, when we're working with Visa, we actually can decide in advance and designate entities in advance and then manually change them if necessary. So we make a different trade-off, but it allows us to get to scalability. And, and I think that's like all technology, there's never a right answer. There's always the right answer for the problem you're trying to solve. So that's the essence. And then I want to speak about something else, which is, you know, with Visa, you said they're processing millions and millions of transactions. And the other thing I think we've thought about is we, we don't go to our partners and say, rip and replace your infrastructure tomorrow. You know, you're processing billions of dollars of card transactions. Let's do it on a blockchain. Uh, that is also not a feasible go-to-market path. Instead, we say, what's an opportunity that Visa would like to capture that is difficult to capture on traditional infrastructure that we can uniquely enable? And so in all of our partnerships, what you'll find is the solution, the use case, you're usually demonstrating a new capability for the firm, a new opportunity. And, and mostly we're working on how can a blockchain enable growth and a new strategy? So, so let's play out just a two or three or four years away. And um, you've got quite a few banks working with R3 and Corda, uh, which is now going open source. You've got Hyperledger Project. Uh, you've got some banks doing Ripple um, proof of concepts. You're going to end up with an awful lot of different chains. So do you think we'll end up with um, some form of standardization of blockchains eventually or yeah. is it going to just be interoperability between them so i think three things first i think there will be more than one protocol i think that certain protocols will skew towards certain use cases um, second nonetheless there will be a darwinian winnowing uh, of who delivers and who doesn't there are dozens of projects kind of vying for a similar space there will not be dozens of blockchain protocols for financial services. But there will be some, I'm sure there will be a few. And finally, what standardization is something that happens once networks are in production. You don't set standards and start harmonizing until something is real. So I suspect those that do make it to production will find ways in which we say, okay, well now we want to connect these two networks. We need to have a protocol or a standards process for doing that. Uh, and so I suspect that will happen, but I think we're a couple of years away from that. Nonetheless, if you go to Chain's uh, protocol specification and you look at the interoperability section, you'll see our engineers have already started building bridges to other technologies uh, and have already defined how that will happen or could happen and have even architected our protocol to anticipate that so that we are not uh, stuck at a point where you can't uh, cross-collaborate. So it's a good question, uh, and it's one that I think the industry is thinking about, but I think, in fact, is overthinking. I think more important than can we all get in a room and set a standard is, how about we figure out how to build products and services that are better than what we could have today, and then earn the right to standardize once those things have demonstrated their viability in the marketplace. Final couple of questions and sure. uh, come to close, but. Um, yeah, big impact announcements you made last year NASDAQ, this year Visa, next year Swift. Um, I'm not saying that you're going to say Swift is the announcement next year, but sure. Swift is obviously going to be concerned about what you're doing with Visa. 
um, because uh, it, it does impact their network. Well, so look, Swift is Swift is a massive network. They're they're not going away anytime soon. I um, I have talked to the management team there, and uh, I'll share with you what I shared with them because uh, it's nothing nothing secretive. Last year when I met them, I said um, I said nobody has probably a better starting position to reach you know an international kind of payments model and yet nobody has more to lose if they don't take action so the question for swift and not just swift but all kind of payment network incumbents marketplace operator incumbents is will they identify opportunities and build strategies for transforming their market in a way that you know, the innovator's dilemma is a real thing. Um, and and so it, it's, it's never rip and replace, you know, and just move everything over on day one. So the hard part is finding those openings where a Swift or others can uh, can can launch a, a network and, and then migrate over time. So a lot of what we do at Chain is not just the technology half, but that kind of strategic partnering on identifying those opportunities. Um, and look, at the end of the day, Chain is not a, we don't work in a you know, proprietary way with partners. We're a technology vendor. The real uh, competition, so to speak, happens at the solution level. Uh, and, and I think there will be uh, winners and losers at the end of the day, but I think you know, this is gonna take years to sort of play out. Fascinating conversation, Adam. I guess, um, in conclusion, you've had great success in the financial markets already as a young company. What's your ambitions? Are you going to stay in the financial space or are you going to move out into other industries? Where's your vision for Chain? We're, we're focused on the financial services market. So there are folks looking at blockchain applications in healthcare and you know device management, um, data management, identity. For us, it, it's really um, uh, it, most interesting to think about. We just want to move assets more efficiently between organizations, and like I said earlier, there's 100 trillion flowing through the economy, mostly on antiquated plumbing. Uh, so we, we just want to pull, put some modern plumbing in the financial system, reduce the sort of systemic risks that come from these you know, uh, systems where you don't really know where assets are at any given point, and ultimately you know, lead to better products and services for, for businesses and consumers of these, uh, these networks. Makes sense, Adam. Have a great money 2020. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adam, for sitting down with us. Um, and thank you, Chris, for getting that interview as you jet around the world on your world tour. And now onto an interview with Trent. Excellent. So I am here with Trent McConaughey live from Berlin talking on a Google Hangout. Trent, how are you, sir? Very well, thank you. And how are you? Very well, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I think first and foremost for our listeners, uh, tell us, who are you? Like, what have you done? What's your background? Uh, sure. So I grew up on a pig farm in rural Canada, and then I became an AI researcher. And that's actually pretty close to what happened. And more recently, I've been doing uh, blockchain-related um, technologies. So um, as you know, AI, I started with a degree in electrical engineering and then computer science and have a PhD in that as well. And along the way, I've done three companies. So my first two companies were AI for designing computer chips. And more recently, I'm doing BigChainDB, which is uh, scalable blockchain database. 
So we've done a lot of episodes in and around AI and AI for designing computer chips is an interesting one because I I don't know if a lot of people realize that AI has been doing this for a number of years, if not a decade now. And AI is a relatively new buzzword, but it seems like something that uh, if if you've already moved on from it, uh, there must have been something that's been going on for a little while there. Yeah, I mean, the promise of AI has been around since the 50s, right? And it's had its ups and downs, you know, had a winter in the the mid 60s and had another winter in the late 80s. But um, along the way, there is always technologies, subsets of AI that were actually useful here and there and here and there. So, and you can use these technologies and invent new ones as you need in order to solve particular problems that people have. And in the world of computer chip design, if you think about it, inside your phones, you've got these chips with a billion transistors. And you might ask, how is this possible to design at all when you've got only a small team of 20 or 50 people to design this? The answer is AI, right? So um, AI is actually what has been making it possible to design these radically complicated chips for the last 10, 20, 30 years, and especially the last 10, right? And this is exactly what we did in my last two companies was AI to make it possible to design chips, you know, with, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of transistors at, you know, the tiniest of tiny scales, you know, 14 nanometers and below the leading edge technologies. So it's not really possible to do unless you use AI. You know, it's not the sexy field, um, you know, for designing computer chips, but um, it's inside your iPhone and it's been there for all along, right? So we're pretty happy with that. You know, the results of these companies, um, all the different chips that you might use, the phones, et cetera, a lot of that was in part from the technology that my companies created. Fantastic. So um, I, I would love to get into you about the AI stuff because I'm sure you have a lot of interesting views on, on that subject, but it's probably worth going on to that other super interesting thing you've got going on, which is you run a new company. So tell me a little bit about uh, how VicChain came about and, and what is it? Sure. So overall, a bit of the story is kind of always in my career, it's always been about sort of solving problems, looking around, seeing what the pain point is, what the pain point is. You know, the AI side, it was Oh my, you know, oh, oh man, you know, Moore's law is going to hit a wall unless you actually solve these challenges. And um, you know, for a while there, um, I had this hobby with uh, with my wife and with another friend, Bruce, which was uh, we we saw in early and mid 2013 that um, Bitcoin, uh, if you know, twisted around in just the right way, it could be used to solve a very specific problem. And that was how do you collect digital art? And that was actually considered a really big problem in the art world. You know, art is a 60 billion dollar plus industry. Yeah, digital is less than a billion. Why is that? You know, given that it's you know 2016 or even 2013 back then, and it was because there was no clean way to actually own that digital art. So we asked the question, what if you could own digital art the way you own Bitcoin? And we pulled on that thread, pulled on the thread, and it turns out the answer was, well, actually you could. Uh, you know, basically if you um, control the private key, then you uh, own the work. And of course you have to tie in with copyright laws, and we worked that out. And we generalized this as well, not just to digital art, but to uh, all IP. And we worked with a lawyer, a full-time lawyer in-house, to make this uh, generalizable across the copyright laws um, on more than 100 nations on the planet, um, just because, you know, leveraging contract law, et cetera. So tying in, you know, the actual legals with the blockchain. And we were doing this back in 2013 even. Um, and as we progressed along, though, iterating with these lead users, these professional artists selling work for, you know, $10,000, $100,000 a piece, galleries, museums, et cetera, we kept running into the same problem. And that was, you know, this museum here would have 100,000 works, that museum there would have a million works, and they wanted to be able to ascribe it all to, to register it on the blockchain. And uh, Bitcoin itself uh, costs about 10 cents per transaction for a transaction to go through, um, just because of, um, you know, that's what the miners charge, they consider it dust otherwise. 
Um, as well as, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain itself, it's only handling 100,000 transactions um, per day, roughly speaking. You know, there's scalability proposals, et cetera. But for this sort of thing where you need the full provenance, then you need to actually treat every single transaction differently, differently. So this was sort of the backdrop. And we were running into these scalability issues. And we said, well, you know, it's probably not just us. And some of the, you know, block size debate was heating up. Um, other people were hating issues of scale. And we said, well, you know, there's this dream of Bitcoin as this planetary database. And people are still calling Bitcoin and blockchains databases. But is anyone really giving full credence to that, where they're not just paying lip service to it, but treating it as a database or trying to design something that looked, act, felt like a database that had these new blockchain characteristics? And after all, you know, there are, you know, these planetary scale databases out there right now. They're the ones that power the Internet, the ones that power Facebook, Netflix, Google, all these things. Under the hood, all the data is, is databases and they solve consensus. You know, this stuff goes back decades. Um, so the question is, what was new about blockchain technology and how could we engineer that in? And this is exactly what led us to BigchainDB. We said, OK, what's new? What's interesting? You know, what makes blockchain technology a blue ocean database? And then how do you bring the best of those worlds, right? Uh, how do you merge these traditional big data databases that already scale, uh, that already have querying with these new characteristics? And we identify so, the new characteristics. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so if um, Facebook and Google and those platform players are using really yeah. big databases and you look to learn from them, and then yeah. on the other side, you've got Bitcoin comes along and you look yeah. to learn from it, would it be yeah. fair to say you took those two, two extremes and synthesized them because you had a problem, right? You couldn't yeah. figure out how you can make digital art work more like physical art. So physical art, if I give you the painting, you now yeah. have that painting. In digital art, if I send you a copy of that, you have a copy and I have a copy, kind of like email. If I send you an email, I have a copy, you have a copy. What was really interesting about Bitcoin is it created this essence of digital uniqueness. If you have a Bitcoin, I do not have that Bitcoin. If I have a Bitcoin, you do not have that Bitcoin. Nobody can have the same thing twice, which makes the digital world like the physical world for the first time. So you then took those two extremes of kind of uh, how Bitcoin works, but some of its design flaws, the uh, kind of world of these big database scale, or big internet scale databases and said, what happens if we combine the two? And what did you find when you did? When you, where are the trade-offs between the two? Where does something need to look more like a database? And where does something need to look more like Bitcoin? Overall, you hit the nail on the head and it really is about, you know, having this, this notion of scarcity when you want scarcity or at the very least timestamping when particular actions happen in this way that's immutable, that you know, no one can take away from you once you've made that claim. Uh, so to your question of you know, how do we reconcile the two, um, we looked around and if you think about blockchain technology, it kind of came out of the blue. Yes, there's been cryptography research since you know, the 60s, 70s, et cetera, and before, um, but the, the research and development, uh, the technology on databases has been, um, there's been a lot more of it. Um, you know, man millennia worth of work instead of man decades worth of work on the sort of crypto side. And so we said, let's leverage this off-the-shelf technology that already scales. Because you know, if you don't solve scaling, you don't have anything. You know, in my time in artificial intelligence, I saw researcher after researcher saying, "Hey, here's a way to solve this problem. Uh, all we need to do now is scale it up." And guess what? If you scale it up, it's a radically different approach. It's a radically different algorithm. So we knew that from day one, we needed to actually think about scale. So when we ran into these problems in Ascribe of scale, we said, "Okay, we just need to rethink this all." And hey, lo and behold, someone has actually thought about how do you solve scale um, on a distributed database. And now what you need to do is to bring in the blockchain characteristics 
you have to ask what's new, you know, what makes um, Bitcoin sort of this blue ocean database? And there's three things. There's the decentralized control, the idea that you can have multiple entities sharing control together. There's the immutability, um, which leads directly to the idea of audit trails, whether that's financial audit trails or provenance in an artwork, et cetera. And there's the idea of native assets. So you can have an asset that actually lives on this data substrate. And um, you know, to have the assets, you need the other two as a prerequisite because otherwise someone controls it, et cetera. And once you have these native assets, then it, leads, it makes it very easy to implement changes with very low friction, whether it's you know, traditional financial exchanges or things like multi-sided platforms like Uber, et cetera. So those three characteristics taken together, the idea of decentralized control, immutability, and assets, those were the three things that we had to build above and beyond the existing distributed database. Everything else, the database has already brought, they brought consensus, they brought ordering, they brought operationalizability. You know, these things have been shipping in production for decades, and even the large scale ones, you know, for 15 years, right? So um, it was really those deltas that we had to build above and beyond. So we had the luxury of standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, these people who have done amazing work in distributed databases, you know, the RethinkDB, MongoDBs of the world, and we build on top of them. So would it be fair to say you kind of, instead of starting with Bitcoin and trying to make it go faster, you started with databases and trying to add decentralized control and mutability and native assets? Exactly right. So instead of trying to big datify blockchain, we blockchainified big data. That's an interesting, interesting idea. So um, make this real for my listeners and, and the good listeners of FinTech Insider. Give me a couple of instances where having an audit trail and decentralized control with native assets kind of comes in and makes sense. So you mentioned art and, and other IP. Can you just talk through two or three examples and especially where that might have a finance element to it? Yeah, sure. So overall, um, you know, in, in the finance angle, um, one of the core challenges across a whole bunch of different finance problems is the idea of delivery versus payment. So, you know, party A um, puts up some money, party B is supposed to pay them for it, but there's this this cash in transit that's just sitting there for, you know, one minute or one day or three days. And every minute that it's sitting out there where things aren't settled, that's risk. That costs a lot of money with insurance, et cetera, right? And the challenge is, why is there insurance? Because sometimes things screw up. And so imagine where you're recording every single action in a way that's immutable. Uh, and I'll give you a specific example. Let's talk about FX trading, right? You've got the the front office and the back office and the front office, you've got two or three steps, depending how you count them in the back office, two, three, four steps. Every single one of those steps is to go from one step to the next. The um, multiple things could go wrong. And if something goes wrong, you need to have some sort of SWAT team that comes in, identify what goes wrong and try to change things somehow. But um, that's basically playing sleuth with every single one of these transactions. Imagine if there was just simply a mirror, um, a timestamp of all the transactions that took place on this system sitting on the side. That way, um, when, when uh, this, these changes are happening, when these steps are being going through, your reconciliation team has a much easier job. Now, this just, that's just to get started, right? Because you know, having this mirror means you don't have to change. That's a really interesting start, though, isn't it, Trent? I mean, like, um, that's really tangible. A lot of people talk about rebuilding everything inside of a financial company or outsourcing all of its IT, but actually, just having a database with decentralized control and audit trail and native assets along the side of all of the existing processes kind of starts to alleviate some of the reconciliation issues very, very quickly, but actually doesn't change existing workflows and slots in quite neatly. That's that's an interesting idea. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of generalizes too. Like if you look around, you know, when when financial institutions are adopting technology, they're not just thinking about blockchain, of course, right? Like one of the big things that has been coming down the pipe in the last five years is big data itself. 
right? And, you know, we're looking around and we're seeing these projects of 10 million, 50 million, more than $100 million within a given bank to, to rejigger the architecture to move from data warehouses to data lakes. And these are big projects. But the problem is, you know, even as they move to these new data lakes, um, what is the story of the data? What is the audit trail of the data as it goes from party A to party B to party C, right? Every single data point. So imagine if, as it goes from the, the sensors outside, whether it's stock prices or IoT weather data or whatever, coming in, you know, getting dumped into some um, HDFS data lake, going through some processing and normalization, getting stored in some MongoDB cluster, going out to some um, business analytics with Tableau and whatnot. What if every single one of those steps actually had uh, a timestamp and not and a proof of existence um, of the data? So this is actually a story of the data. So you can not only have a story of the numbers themselves, you know, the audit trail and FX trading, but on at the level of the data itself. And that makes things much, much, much cleaner and makes it, uh, even as we move to these new processes, you know, from the, the data warehouses to the data lakes. So, um, you know, it, it's addressing this, this unresolved pain point um, and shifting to these new technologies as well. Makes a lot of sense. So talk to me a little bit about who your ideal customer is. Are they somebody who um, has these problems around auditability? Are they in any particular vertical? Where do you see your target customers coming from? Yeah, so overall, BigChainDB, um, first and foremost, we're a database vendor, right? So, so we build a database, we have a community version, and we will be rolling an enterprise version at some point. So this is not unlike MongoDB or DataStacks or others, where they ship MongoDB, Cassandra, et cetera, right? And what's special about BigChainDB um, is that we're a blockchain database. It's got these three new characteristics. So then you can ask yourself, okay, with database companies, you know, who do they serve? And they tend to serve a fairly broad spectrum, but they just do a really, really good job of, of solving that piece, right? So you're asking yourself, okay, should I plug in a database? I need a database that's a NoSQL database. Okay, great. Then I'm gonna probably look at something like MongoDB or one of the others. Or if you need a graph database, maybe use Neo4j. Well, now you're looking around and you're saying, okay, I want um, a blockchain database. Well, who are you gonna call? BigGDB, right? So within specific verticals though, we have identified there's, you know, of the different hundreds of organizations we've talked to, kind of clustering it down, there's a few key verticals that tend to be having particular problems that we can really help. Uh, we've talked about financial, and that's probably fairly obvious, you know, the audit trails, but then also, um, you know, value above and beyond that too. Another big one is supply chain, right? So supply chain, you've got this ecosystem of all these different participants that um, they're not really keen on having a single entity control all the data of that ecosystem. But if they can actually collectively share that data, have some database that it, um, infrastructure that they're sharing together, then they can actually start to track assets and identify when leaks happen, when fraud happens. And this is a big deal, right? Because now instead of just moving, um, you know, financial instruments, which is sort of, you know, sort of the 2% or 5% charge on top of an economy, this is the atoms of the economy itself. This is the other 95%, right? So this is, you know, when you spend, you know, 50,000 pounds for, for a hunk of metal, a car, you know, or you buy a house, you're buying atoms and the things inside that, that car, inside that, sorry, inside that house, et cetera, right? So supply chain, um, you know, preventing leak, um, preventing fraud, all of that, that's a big, big one. And then very quickly, other ones, other verticals include intellectual property. That's ripe for um, change and improvement. Uh, identity, and that's identity assurance, as well as the idea of sovereign personal data. Energy uh, in the face of deregulation. And government applications too. Governments have a lot of registries, but um, they've had a challenge in implementing them well, everything from land registries to bicycles, et cetera. So those are some verticals, um, and we're seeing um, plays in, in all of those and beyond, but those are really the main six. 
Huge. And is there anything that uh, I haven't asked you that you think is really key for our listeners to understand? Yeah, so I think overall, you know, blockchain technology shouldn't be treated as some magical, mythical thing that's impossible to understand. Instead, think of it like a blue ocean database, right? So just like graph databases were a new blue ocean database, blue ocean database where you could actually store graphs and do interesting things there, blockchains are a new blue ocean, uh, blockchain databases are a new blue ocean database that gives you new benefits. And the main one is shared control. But that also gives you immutability and native assets. So that's really the core. You know, don't try to spend weeks and weeks and weeks trying to understand this. It's really quite simple if you frame it from a database perspective. And lastly, just to get a little technical and geeky, if there are many people sharing a database and many administrators, can we truly have immutability, or is there are there some compromises and trade-offs there that that we need to be aware of? Uh, in general, you can um, because this is part of the design, right? If you had it where someone who's administering a particular node could go in and change the data on another node, then that kills the whole point of it, right? Um, this is actually a key design constraint when you're designing this database to start with. So um, that's an absolute necessary constraint in order to address the concern you raised. So totally yes, you can have this. Totally makes sense. Listen, Trent, thank you so much. Uh, for our listeners, where can they find out more about uh, BigChainDB? Where can they find out more uh, interesting things about technologies like it? BigChainDB.com. Beautiful. Trent, I really appreciate your time, so thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cheers. And that's all we've got time for today. We'll be back soon with a blockbuster week of all things blockchain. We'd love to hear from you, so please tweet us at fintechinsiders or email us at hello at 11fs.co.uk or at 11fsteam, that's 11fsteam. We'd love a review on iTunes, so be nice. Go on, give us a review. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon.